This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Genetically modified or GM crops are a hot topic. Some people are deeply suspicious of the technology, while others see it as an effective and efficient way of generating bountiful, healthier harvests. What kind of agriculture do we want? What kind of genes do we want to put in? Are we putting in the right genes? Could we make better choices uh, about how they're deployed? And so on and so forth. Plus, purple tomatoes, a giant of a gene involved in heart disease, and what's in a name? We take a look at the naming of genes. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for February 2015 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Few scientific topics are as controversial as GM technology. It's used to manipulate the genes of food and other crops to make them resistant to diseases and pests, to tolerate poor growing conditions or to increase their nutritional value. To take a look at the science of GM behind the hype and the headlines, I spoke to Professor Jonathan Jones at the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich. GM is actually a method, not a thing. It's very important to bear that in mind. And the method enables you to take a DNA sequence from essentially any organism and use the properties of a a bacterium called agrobacterium to deliver that DNA into a plant cell. And if that DNA carries a gene that serves a useful purpose, or does, uh, for example, enhances crop resistance to insects, then you can get a a plant back that has properties that could not have been achieved by plant breeding. So can you give me some examples of this? What sort of properties have been given to plants from, mm. from the outside by this technology? Well, the two most uh, abundantly used e- examples are, firstly, to use a gene from a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis, which uh, is often used by organic farmers. Uh, it c- contains a so-called crystal protein that's toxic to larvae of many insects. And uh, you, the plant is engineered to, to modify, to carry in its cells... Uh, the gene that makes this protein. So the protein is made in the plant and anything that eats the plant that is susceptible to that protein uh, doesn't thrive or dies. Whereas insects, and this is very important, don't eat the plant, are completely unaffected. And so this is much better uh, as a way to control insect pests than applying insecticides from you know sprays or aeroplanes or, or combines or whatever uh, because um, you get much less collateral damage to non-target insects. It only kills the insects that eats the plant. Approximately um, 400,000 tonnes of insecticide, we're talking nasty neurotoxins, have not been applied that would otherwise have been applied to control insects. And, and that's an enormous benefit uh, for, that's built up over the last 20 years of cultivation of, of, of GM crops. So this all sounds like a good thing in theory, but is there any, for example, if you have a crop that's been engineered to have a bacterial toxin in, mm. I'm going to be eating that crop if they make any food from it. Is there any risk to human health from that? Well, with respect to BT, like I say, organic farmers apply BT. There's no credible... Uh, mechanism for uh, any hazard to human health. There's never been any evidence that it causes any damage to human health. So no, not a problem. What are some of the things that scientists are now working on now, the kind of characteristics that that we could engineer into crops? The scope for improvement of crops in many, many different ways. Um, Some more near-term and some more uh, distant. Uh, Near-term, some of your listeners may have heard about a trial of uh, GM camelina 
which is engineered to produce the uh, long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids that are present in uh, fish oil and very good for uh, vascular health. And there's just not enough fish in the sea for us all to get enough of this stuff. These compounds are only made in algae that were eaten by little invertebrates that were eaten by little fish that were eaten by big fish that we eat. But now it's possible to make these compounds in an oil seed, and uh, this would greatly uh, improve the environmental sustainability of fish farming and, and increase the supply of these compounds in our diet. So that's a good thing. Yeah. My own work, we're, we're working on uh, potato late blight resistance, as our researchers elsewhere. Potatoes are spray, sp- sprayed 15 times a year for late blight. This is expensive, uh, increase the cost of production, and uh, potentially damaging tractors going up and down, CO2 uh, costs and so on. So if we can make the plant resistant to disease by moving in genes from wild relatives of potato into the cultivated potato, then we can save uh, a lot of environmental impact. And that same principle can be applied to many other diseases and many other crops. So longer term, there are credible approaches to increase uh, drought tolerance, to increase um, salt tolerance, to, and, 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 and farthest off in the future of all, trying to engineer nitrogen-fixing versions of crops like uh, wheat and barley and, and maize. So you wouldn't need to add fertilisers. They'd kind of make their own fertilisers from That's their roots. That's right. So if you look in Africa, one of the major constraints on, on crop yields is, a, is lack of avail- availability of nitrogen. It's a, there's hardly any fertiliser factories in Africa. So if you could get the plants to fix nitrogen from the air themselves without any need to supply exogenous fertiliser, that would be a good thing. GM technology is one way of getting genes into things, of changing the genes of an organism. Could the kind of changes you're talking about not be achieved in other ways? Why is GM genetic modification the only way to do some of these things? Plant breeding is really great. Plant breeding is going on. Plant breeding has been um, improved in efficiency enormously by the advent of new sequencing technologies. To suggest it's uh, a matter of either GM or uh, plant breeding is a completely false antithesis. So both have contributions to make. The problem with just breeding them in is you breed them in one at a time. Uh, If you've only got one resistance gene, it's easy for one mutation in the pathogen to overcome that resistance. Also, when you bring in genes by breeding, you bring in big chunks of chromosome uh, from the wild relative, not just the gene you want. Compare, if you will, uh, the scenario where you clone multiple resistance genes from different wild relatives, and then you have got the clone DNA, you can stick them together, so you can put in three genes at once, you leave behind all the, uh, the other bad alleles of, of other genes that actually de- decrease yield, and that is a much better way to give you sustainable disease resistance than bringing in these genes uh, by breeding. A particular benefit is that once you've got three genes stuck together by recombinant DNA, then they can't be broken up by plant breeders. Whereas if you've bred in three different genes and they're in different places in the chromosome, of course, once you've got a variety, a plant breeder will start crossing from that resistant variety into their own. They will separate all those genes and then they can be picked off by the pathogen. But once they're ligated together, they can't be separated. So that's a, that's a good illustration of why and recombinant DNA is better than, uh, um, than plant breeding in this particular example, but also why it's very important to preserve genetic diversity so we've got the biggest possible resource of diversity to mine for new sources of resistance to important diseases. 
Now, if you look on something like social media, often there are criticisms of some of the big agricultural companies that are doing genetic modification and there seems to be uh, a fear or the idea that it's bad or risky or that Mm. by involving big businesses in this it's somehow suppressing farmers or it is a bad thing for the world. How would you answer some of those criticisms? Uh, I think that the technology is usually a surrogate for people's other concerns. But, you know, the technology has become a lightning rod for people's legitimate questions about uh, is it a good thing for only a few companies to control the germplasm on which the world's food supply depends. That's an important issue. I wouldn't contest anybody who's concerned about that issue, but it's nothing to do with GM. The right discussion to have is what kind of agriculture do we want? What kind of genes do we want to put in? Are we putting in the right genes? Could we make better choices uh, about how they're deployed? And so on and so forth. We actually have an urban population that is profoundly ignorant of how hard it is to produce food. The real difficulty is that in the media, everyone's attention span, uh, including journalists included, is so short, you can't really develop a complex argument. Uh, everybody uh, just wants to deal in, in very simple sound bites that, that actually are gross oversimplifications of the problem uh, or the solution. That was Jonathan Jones from the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich. Also, while I was in Norwich, I caught up with Professor Kathy Martin at the John Innes Centre. She describes herself as a metabolic engineer using GM technology to develop fruit and veg that are even more healthy, including her famous purple tomatoes. I started by asking her, what exactly is metabolic engineering? So it's engineering metabolism, and I'm very interested in engineering uh, a group of compounds which are called polyphenols, and those are fairly recently been recognised to have health-promoting effects when you eat them. So this is basically making fruit and veg even more healthy than That's it right. Is. I mean, I'm a bit fed up of uh, all of the information that you get about food being things that are bad for you. You know, it's got too much salt, it's got too much saturated fat, etc. I think, you know, you, we need to know whether there are any things that are good in foods for us. And all of the evidence suggests that eating fruit and vegetables is very good for you. And there are specific compounds in Uh, fruit and vegetables that can really uh, reduce the risk of what we call chronic disease, that's certain cancers, cardiovascular disease and metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes. In front of us on the table we've got some beautiful tomatoes but there's two red tomatoes that look like tomatoes and then there's two yellow tomatoes and then these four black plum coloured things. What, what have we got here? Tell me about these. Okay, so this is a control. So this is a regular tomato, well spotted <laughs> there. And then this is a tomato that has been metabolically engineered to produce compounds which are called flavanols. And that's the yellow one here. That's the yellow one. And the reason it's yellowish, or orangey yellow, is because it has high levels of these pale yellow uh, compounds. So If I was to squash it, you'd see a pale yellow juice, which would be more yellow than in this one. And so it's turned it. It's not because it's got less of the red colour, which is lycopene, but it's got more of a pale yellow compound. So So it's an extra yellow rather than a not red. yellow, yeah. And these are things like quercetin and camphorol, uh, which are good for you. They're good antioxidants, but they're they're also shown to uh, be beneficial in the diet. And what about these purpley ones? These ones ones have another compound, which is chemically related to the flavanols, but these are anthocyanins. And so they're pigments in plants. They're the sort of things that make 
delphinium blue. And it looks that looks like blackberry colour. These yes. are blackberry coloured tomatoes. And, yes, and uh, that it's the same compound that's present in blackberries and all of those super fruits that you've been hearing that are good for you. Very uh, <laughs> Yeah. So now we've done it in tomatoes. They also have this red lycopene, but you can't really see it because they've got so much anthocyanin and what will make you gasp. Okay, <laughs> we're cutting cut them open. Wow. Isn't it beautiful? That It's like a tomato, <laughs> but, oh, really beautiful, rich, dark purple. L- literally like a tomato, but you're looking at it through a, a completely purple filter. Yes, so they, black look, as they, light. Are, they really are tomatoes, but they look completely different because they're very rich in these anthocyanins. Actually, this one is rich in both uh, anthocyanins and the flavanols as well, and it gives this rather beautiful royal purple. But we've shown experimentally in what we call preclinical studies that these can uh, slow down the rate of progression of cancer in uh, in animal models of that disease, and also that they can be protective against arteriosclerosis when they're eaten in the diet. But I could get those benefits from eating loads and loads and loads of blackberries. Absolutely, but probably if you ate loads and loads and loads of blackberries, enough that you'd get, say, the equivalent uh, of two of these tomatoes would be about 70 grams of blackberries. And that, that's a lot of blackberries. <laughs> it's a lot of blackberries. You wouldn't get them all year round, and you'd eat them with a lot of sugar, which would be a bad thing. <laughs> so these you can eat without the sugar. Am I allowed to taste one? You are these these <laughs> laboratory specimens. I think we'll have to say that they're laboratory specimens. There's a problem if you eat the seeds because we haven't got regulatory approval and it would be considered an inadvertent environmental release and I'd have to ask personal questions. Okay, um, I, I don't want to inadvertently release anything into the environment. Um, these tomatoes, they look beautiful. They, they've got useful compounds. And what what other kind of traits do you think you could engineer into our fruit and veg that would be beneficial? Well, we've already done some other polyphenols, which you may have heard of. So something called resveratrol that's present in grape juice and uh, in uh, red wine. We're looking to be able to regulate the production of this red compound here, uh, lycopene. So we could maybe... We haven't got the tools yet to do it, but we're looking to make high lycopene tomatoes or even higher lycopene tomatoes. There. Super tomatoes. Uh, super tomatoes, because <laughs> lycopene is quite healthy for you and uh, protects against uh, some cardiovascular disease as well. So I think that uh, the prospects, the, the potential is enormous, but uh, we're just at the beginning at the moment. How have you made these purple and yellow tomatoes? What's the process you go through to turn... Well, to turn what's a red tomato into a, a purple tomato. Okay. So, so the genes that we use to do the engineering are essentially switches, and they switch on the production of these compounds in a place where they're not normally made. So the same compounds will be made by tomatoes in the leaves when they're stressed. And if you ever take a tomato or forget to water your tomato plants, you'll see these purple pigments forming at quite low levels in the leaves. What we've done is is be able to switch them on by putting in a gene that serves as a molecular switch to turn on the pathway. So basically we've just moved where a metabolite is, a compound is produced from the leaves to the fruit. There are actually some species, wild species of tomato that make some anthocyanins in their skin in the fruit, uh, skin of the fruit, but uh, they don't make it on the inside, so they don't have such high levels as this. 
The examples of GM technology that we've talked about seem very beneficial, making our foods healthier, and uh, other types of technology making foods more sustainable or growing with less chemicals and all these kind of things. But there are some people who say that we shouldn't be messing with our food in this way. Are there any risks of this kind of technology? I I think that the, the procedure of genetic modification per se is an established neutral technology. So that means that people have been using it in the pharmaceutical industry for the past 30, 40 years. Many of our medicines that we get now have been produced uh, through genetic modification of microorganisms. And for modification of crops, the risks in terms of the safety of the food that you produce are are only dependent on the trait that you engineer. And I believe that it's possible to engineer something that's detrimental. I think that our tomatoes have proven health benefits. So the technology is neutral. The trait itself has to be examined and regulated. And I think that we have good evidence that this is a beneficial trait. For people that don't want uh, GM products, that's okay. You don't have to buy them. But let everybody else have the choice. Cathy Martin from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Katani. And now it's time for a look at one of the genetic stories that hit the news this month about a condition known as dilated cardiomyopathy, where the heart muscles become enlarged and don't work properly. It affects around one in every 250 people in the UK and is a major cause of sudden death in apparently fit and healthy individuals, as well as being the leading reason for needing a heart transplant. In 2012, researchers discovered that one in four cases of dilated cardiomyopathy are due to faults in a huge gene called titin. But it turns out that many people carry faults in titin, but don't seem to have the problem. So are they at risk? I spoke to James Ware from Imperial College London, who's been looking at the titin gene in thousands of people to find out. Titin produces the largest protein in the human body, uh, and it's a massive gene which was essentially previously too big really to study in large numbers of people. So that really changed the landscape of the genetics of this condition. How did you then set about seeing how faults in the gene were related to this particular heart problem? Having been excited to find one in four cases might be explained, we were less excited to find that about one in 50 people in in the general population also have a similar variant. So really the biggest question in our mind was, Why do many healthy people have these variants and how are they different from the variants that are causing disease? So people like you, me, regular people could be walking around with a fault in this gene that in some cases causes a heart problem, but in most cases just doesn't. It's a change in the gene that looks like it should cause a fault in the gene, if you like. And what we don't know is, is it actually causing a fault in the gene, but that just doesn't harm you? Is it that it could harm you, but it hasn't yet? There are lots of possibilities, and that was the first thing we really wanted to uh, disentangle. I guess that's quite an important question, because if someone's walking around with a gene fault that means they could just drop dead at any minute, you would want to know about it. Exactly. It's a huge question, and particularly as I mean, your listeners may have heard press of think, about things like the 100,000 Genomes Project, You know, the Prime Minister saying he's going to sequence the genomes of 100,000 people. Well, a 1,000 of them will have a variant of this sort in Titan. Do we need to get them all into cardiology clinics urgently? Do we need to tell them all that their families are at risk? Um, you know, more and more people are having genome sequencing for other reasons when they're healthy to start with. And we, uh, so we really need to understand that. So how did you go about then trying to unpick what the faults in Titan might mean for someone who carries one of these mistakes? 
We looked at more than 5,000 people from a whole range of backgrounds. So we sequenced some people who had dilated cardiomyopathy uh, and with very severely who were waiting for transplant. We sequenced people who just came to our clinic for a, a heart scan uh, with dilated cardiomyopathy. And then we sequenced many thousands of people who had just been selected from the community. They were apparently healthy. And so in all of those people, we sequenced this gene and we catalogued all the variation that we saw. Uh, we also uh, had some heart tissue sample from people who'd consented to give us a sample at the time of transplantation. Uh, so we were able to look in detail at, at how the titan molecule had changed in people with and without abnormalities in the protein. So what's the bottom line? What did you find? The bottom line is, firstly, that we were able to find features that discriminated between the variants that cause disease and those that don't. So we can categorise certain types of variants. We can, we can now reassure people that is not a variant that causes a problem. Uh, uh, if we find it incidentally, we can reassure them we won't drag them into the cardiology clinic. And that's fantastic news for them. Secondly, there are other confident variants that we now can be very confident they are uh, causing trouble. Uh, and the most relevant use of this is when we find an individual who has dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, we want to find out whether their family members uh, are also at risk. We can do that by examining them in the clinic and doing a scan of their heart, but very often that will be normal. And we don't know if it's simply that they haven't got the condition yet and we need to keep an eye on them. And so what happens at the moment is people, a, a, a brother, a sister, a father, a child of someone with dilated cardiomyopathy will probably be followed up in a cardiology clinic for the rest of their life. What we can now do is test their gene, test their titan gene uh, in the person who has the condition in the family. If we can pinpoint the exact genetic cause, we can then test their family for that. And anyone who doesn't have it can be reassured, they can be discharged from the clinic, they don't have to have that long-term follow-up that's a big burden for, for them and also for the NHS. So I think that's the biggest uh, win from this study. As we start sequencing more and more genomes from more and more people, it's becoming clear that there are these, you know, these bad variations popping up all the time in people who don't appear to be ill. Do you think the work that you've done might be almost a flagship research project for this kind of investigation for other conditions? Are there any other diseases you know about where this kind of thing might be relevant? Definitely. I think that one of the things we need to do at the moment is to better understand the variation in normal people and how we can distinguish between variants that are going to cause trouble in the future and variants that aren't. I think we need two things for that. One is we need more um, uh, knowledge of the genetic variation present in the population. Uh, the second part is really knowing the precise phenotype, the clinical situation of the people who have those variants. And that is more challenging because although we can sequence people from the general population, we can't get them back, we can't get everyone back to do heart scans or brain scans or whatever test is appropriate for the particular condition. So that is the next phase, I think. And th projects like the 100,000 Genome Project in the UK are really going to help to catalogue the clinical situation of the people whose sequences we are starting to look at. That was James Ware from Imperial College London. That work was published in the journal Science Translational Medicine and we'll be taking a closer look at the 100,000 Genomes Project he mentioned in next month's podcast. At this point in the show, we'd usually be hearing about our gene of the month. Over the past couple of years, we've had some wonderfully named examples from Sonic Hedgehog to Superman. Most of them are named by researchers working with model organisms such as fruit flies who tend to pick a name inspired by the appearance of a fly lacking that gene. 
But listener Nikki Peng wants to know more and has written in asking, is there a classification system and agreed nomenclature for genes, as there are for plants and animals? Or can people who discover them call them whatever they like? I spoke to Elspeth Bruford, who leads the Human Gene Nomenclature Committee. They're the people who get to decide the names of human genes to find out what's in a gene's name and how they pick them. Obviously, we take into account if a gene has been published, we try to discuss with the authors who have published on that gene. If a gene hasn't been reported in any scientific publications, then really it's, it's up to us and we have to look at features of the gene and decide how we think it should best be named. Now, some of the genes that I've featured in the podcast have wonderful names because they were discovered in things like fruit flies. So you have genes yeah. like eyeless or you know wingless and all these kind of things. Those aren't the kind of names that come through as human gene names when the equivalent gene is found in humans, are they? Sometimes they are, but um, really we, we try not to use the, the more whimsical names that some fruit fly researchers have chosen to use, mainly because uh, the aim of human gene symbols is that they should be used in, in all contexts, so not just in scientific publications or, or presentations or discussions, but also, and, and you see this more and more, that our gene names should be used in the media, they should be used by clinicians in discussions with patients and by GPs, and especially if you're in a scenario where you're telling a, a patient or the family of a patient with a, a hereditary disorder that their child, for example, has a mutation in a specific gene, if, if the name's too comical, um, it's really not appropriate in that setting and, and some people can find it actually offensive or, or distressing. So we have to take really maybe more of a wider context into account when we're naming human genes. For fruit fly researchers, it's mainly about what's discussed in, in a scientific context and in the lab, perhaps. But for us, we, we have to look at the wider picture because obviously human genes impact human health. And when it comes to naming human genes, what sort of names do you choose and, and how do you reflect what the gene is like or what it does? OK, so we have a, a few criteria that we run through. Ideally, we would name uh, a human gene based on a known function of the gene product. So, for example, if, if the gene encodes an enzyme with a known function, then we would try and name it on, on the basis of that enzyme. If there's not a known function, then we would start looking at homology, so how related it is to other genes that are already known or, or maybe have a known function. Or even that, you know, as in the case of, of genes that are related to fruit fly genes, we would look at homologues in other species and see what was known about their functions. If there is nothing like that, or, or not strong, a, level, a high level of homology, then we would start looking at the, the structure of the protein encoded by the gene. Does it encode any specific regions, usually called protein domains or motifs? And then we would perhaps bring that into the naming. And we'll also, of course, take into, into account any information that has been published or any information that a researcher has come to us saying, we know something about this gene or this gene product. So really, really a variety of criteria, but our favorite um, criteria would be to, to name based on a known function of the encoded gene product. This is going to be a strange question, but do you have any particular favorite gene names or gene names that, that really stick out for you? You, you get fond of the ones that you remember naming. Uh, so, so one way we like to name genes is grouping them into gene families. 
uh, a gene family is usually related by sequence similarity. So the genes are all related to each other. And as a result, they quite often have related functions, not necessarily the same function, but, but something similar about their, their function. And it's quite rewarding to take a group of genes that have been named very disparately and then contact lots and lots of researchers because that is a key part of our job is, is actually contacting the researchers because obviously they know a lot more about these genes and, their, and the encoded proteins than we do. Um, so we, we contact researchers and then we say, uh, this gene's a member of a family along with these other genes and we'd like to group them all together and name them like that so that other researchers can pull out the whole family. And so there's a few gene families that I've worked on in the past that but it's quite rewarding then when you see them being published and people are using the new nomenclature. What's most important for us is that whatever name we decide upon will be used because if the name's not used, then it's kind of defeating the purpose. The purpose is for everybody to be able to find a name in the literature, in, in, in publications, and then know exactly which gene somebody's talking about. And do you think we will see a day when all the, the whimsical names will be replaced by three-letter acronyms? Well, certainly for human, I, I don't know if all of them, because some of them are not offensive or, or pejorative in any way. I don't know if all of them will go. I mean, Sonic Hedgehog, some, sometimes people say that Sonic Hedgehog has been, repo, has been replaced. It hasn't. I mean, Sonic Hedgehog is just so entrenched in the literature that I think we'd, we'd be kind of cutting off our nose to spite our face to get rid of it. But some of the other ones, like Lunatic Fringe or something, yeah, when it's actually potentially offensive, we really have to get rid of them. I, I think they'll probably stick around uh, in Drosophila, though, because they don't see any, any reason to change them. And in fact, they think our way of naming is very boring, too prosaic. But we like to think it's more informative, less fun, perhaps. Elspeth Bruford from the Human Gene Nomenclature Committee. That's all for now. I'll be back next month finding out about Genomics England and the 100,000 Genomes Project. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet us at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.